Well, hello, and thanks for listening in to our weekly teaching podcast here at City Church. We are a church in the Knoxville area that seeks to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you're in Knoxville or ever visiting Knoxville, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people here in the city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can drop us a line at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Well, good to see you guys this morning. My name is Kent. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible with you today, no worries. Feel free to grab one of ours. There should be one under the seats on the end of each row. Uh, If you're using one of our Bibles, the page number will be up on the screen. But we'll be in Mark chapter 10 here in just a bit. we got to do some setup first to kind of wrap our mind around what's going to be said in this passage. But we are going to get to Mark 10 eventually. Uh, If you are brand new with us today, first off, welcome. We're super glad that you're here. Uh, Second off, we are in the middle of a series called I Just Can't Believe, which is really all about the objections and obstacles that people tend to have to faith in Jesus. And truth be told, there are quite a few of those objections. And so we've been working our way through them systematically uh, so far. We have talked about the relationship between faith and reason. We've talked a little bit about the issue that people tend to have with the authority of the Bible. And then last week, Marcus was up here, one of our other pastors, and he talked a little bit about the age-old question of if there is a good God out there, how come there is so much pain and evil and suffering in the world that we inhabit? I thought he just did an incredible job with that sermon, but by far my favorite part of that sermon was that it was not me preaching it. So uh, that was enjoyable for me. Uh, Today, though, here's what we're going to do. We're going to move on to a different topic, and this one, uh, I think, is simultaneously the most widespread objection and also the hardest to spot. I think this one flies under the radar just a little bit. The objection that we'll cover today goes something like this. I just can't believe that God wouldn't want me to be happy. I just can't believe that God wouldn't want me to be happy, which coincidentally is also the title of my memoir about being a Tennessee football fan. (laughs) Um, It was just, it was sad, you guys. It was sad. I love the Vols, and yesterday was sad. Also, last week was sad. Let's not talk about it any more than that. Um, Yeah, absolutely. Um, So uh, today what we're going to talk about is this objection of, I just can't believe that God wouldn't want me to be happy. You know, it goes almost unquestioned in Western society that the point of life is to be happy. It's almost universally agreed upon, at least at a functional level. For starters, it's enshrined forever in America's Declaration of Independence, right? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We see it everywhere from Sheryl Crow back in the day. If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. Anybody remember that song? Way back in the day. (laughs) Three people remember that song. Awesome. So Sheryl Crow back in the day all the way to the rapper Kid Cudi just a few years ago who wrote a song about the pursuit of happiness. Actually, a really vulnerable, really um, disclosive conversation about what it means to be happy and what it means to pursue happiness. All the way down to, at an everyday level, the last conversation that you had with your mom or aunt or grandma who told you, 
I just want you to be happy, right? It's almost universally agreed upon that the supreme pursuit in life for everyone should be their happiness. We pursue it via all sorts of things, food, drink, romance, sex, money, power, substances, you name it. If it exists, we have probably tried to squeeze some amount of happiness out of it. Blaise Pascal famously said this, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object, talking about happiness. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. I think he's very much onto something there. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but even on a very personal, everyday kind of level, we spend nearly our entire lives searching for the next thing that will make us happy. It starts at a very early age. We think things like, I just can't wait until I start middle school, then I'll be happy. And then you get to middle school, and it turns out middle school is pretty horrible. So then it becomes, well, I can't wait until I'm in high school. And then you get to high school, and it turns out high school is only slightly less horrible than middle school was, right? And then it's, well, I can't wait until I get out of school. I can't wait until I get out of my parents' house and, and get into college. Then I'll be able to do whatever I want. Then I'll finally be happy. And, and to be honest, a, a lot of people get to college, and college can be pretty great. But there's this annoying thing called classes, and you have to go to them, and you have to study for them, and you have to prep for them. And so it turns out college doesn't quite do it for us either. So then it's, well, I can't wait until I get out into the real world. Then I'll really get to establish my life. Then I will find happiness once I get out in the real world. And then you get a real world job and turns out adult life can be pretty monotonous and boring at times, right? So that doesn't do it for us either. So then it's, well, I can't wait until I meet someone, Right? I can't wait till I meet somebody. I can't wait till I get married. Maybe then I'll find happiness because if there's one thing that leads to happiness, it's inviting another person into our problems and issues, right? That's going to do it. So then it becomes, well, I can't wait until we have kids. Then we'll be happy. Kids bring joy, right? Nothing quite says bliss on a day-to-day -day level like infants that never sleep, ever. And so then it becomes, well, I can't wait till we get the kids out of the house. That's what's going to make us happy. I can't wait till I retire. And then this is no joke at all. The, the, sky, the, the rates of depression for retired people skyrocket because that's not where happiness is either. I mean, do you see this? We spend so much of our lives thinking that the next stage of life, the next major life event, the next thing that happens to us is going to make us happy and we never quite catch it, do we? We never quite arrive at it. And it's not that those things don't bring us any happiness. I think we would all say those things do bring some degree of happiness, but they never quite provide the lasting happiness that we thought they would. But for most people, that does not discourage the pursuit of happiness one bit. We still believe inherently, deep down in our heart of hearts, that the point of life is to find happiness. And that mindset right there creates some problems for people when it comes to following Jesus. 
Because the way of Jesus, if you're paying attention, contains some ideas and some instructions that will occasionally interfere with your happiness. For example, Matthew 10, 38, Jesus says this, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever doesn't take up their cross. Now, in case you miss that, the cross that Jesus is referring to there is a Roman torture device. It's, it's equivalent to our electric chair or a lethal injection. And Jesus says, unless you're ready for that as my disciple, you are not worthy of me and my way of life. Not exactly a sales pitch for happiness, is it? Jesus says something similar in Luke 9, 23. There he words it this way. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Deny myself? That doesn't sound like it's going to contribute very much to my happiness, does it? I was thinking something more like treat myself, not deny myself. At least that's what a lot of people think. So Jesus all the time will say things like these about what it means to follow him, what it means to be his disciple. And these things sure don't sound like they jive all that much with our conception of happiness. So a lot of people, whether they've heard about these particular verses from the Bible or not, they just get the idea that following Jesus is going to get in the way of their happiness. They've had enough conversations with enough Christians to gather that being a follower of Jesus is not primarily about their happiness. Whether their issue is with how God tells them to handle their money, or their relationships, or their sexuality, or just their ethics in general, it just seems like all of that is going to get in the way of them being happy. And so at a very functional level, this is the objection that many people have to faith. They just can't believe that God wouldn't want them to be happy. Whether they articulate it this way or not, I think this is the barrier that a lot of people encounter. This is what often leads people to reject Jesus. Now, not everyone outright walks away from faith in Jesus because they think this way. In fact, a lot of self-proclaimed Christians choose to resolve the problem a little bit differently. What they'll do instead is just start to believe in a different version of God who is a little more on board with their happiness. They start to believe in a God whose primary desire is to give them anything and everything that they've ever wanted. And I'll be real with you guys, there are plenty of pastors and authors out there who will be glad to help you believe in that version of God. Lots of them. But here's what I want you to see. Behind that version of God is the exact same belief. It's the belief that the point of life is to be happy. So if God is going to be worth worshiping, those people think, then it needs, he needs to be about my happiness too. He needs to be a cheerleader for my happiness. In that worldview, happiness is still in the driver's seat. Now, before we go any further and you get the wrong idea, I want to be clear that I don't think happiness and following Jesus are always at odds with one another. I don't believe that. I don't believe that in part simply because I don't think the, that's the picture that we get of God in the Bible. The Psalms tell us at one point, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, that verse doesn't quite mean what Oprah thinks it means, but it is in the Bible, right? The Bible does say that about God. How about Psalm 4? 
There it says, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Have you ever been to a party where alcohol abounds? There's a good bit of joy there, right? There's a lot of other things too, but there's definitely joy there. And, and so this verse says that that joy doesn't even compare to the joy that God brings us as his people. And, and I will say, don't get too hung up on the difference between happiness and joy there. There's actually a good bit of overlap between those two ideas in the Bible. So Psalm 4, too, would seem to indicate that God and happiness are not always enemies with one another. I mean, even Jesus, the guy who said, pick up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me, that guy also said this, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. That your joy may be full. Full joy sounds like it probably has something to do with happiness. So I don't think it's true that God is always opposed to our happiness. In some ways, it would actually appear that he's for it. Now, our happiness is not his primary goal for us. His primary goal for us is to make us more like him, right? But he also knows that the more we become like him, the more we will find our joy and our happiness in him, in God himself. But here's the distinction. I think this is really important for where we're going today, and then we'll try to unpack this for the rest of our time together. I do think that God approaches happiness a little differently than we do. God approaches happiness a little differently than we do. He thinks about it a little differently than we do. And what I want to try to do for the rest of our time is point out some of that from our passage in Mark chapter 10. So I told you we'd get there eventually. Mark chapter 10, we're going to read a story about an interaction that Jesus has with a rich young man who strikes up a conversation with Jesus. So let's pick it up. Mark 10, starting in verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, that's Jesus, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So this man asked Jesus the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's what he's after. Now, we don't know a ton about this guy's background, so it's hard to know what that phrase eternal life means to him exactly. But it's probably safe to assume that it was some type of eternal, joyous, satisfied existence after death. That's what he's after. He wants to ensure that he obtains that by any means necessary. That's what matters most to this guy. So he asked Jesus how he can make that happen. Take a look at Jesus' response in 18. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. 19. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. And do not defraud. And honor your father and mother. So, if you're wondering, this is basically a lightning-fast overview of the Old Testament law, which apparently the man in the story has some degree of familiarity with. So think Ten Commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, so on and so forth. Jesus says, this is what you need to do if you want to inherit eternal life, to which the man replies, verse 20. And he said to him, teacher... All of these I have kept from my youth. Now, you kind of get the feeling that he had that sentence in his back pocket waiting to say it, right? Like he was just waiting to say in front of Jesus and everybody else, yeah, I've actually kept the Old Testament law perfectly since I was a child. Now, to most of us, that seems unlikely and at least a little bit self-righteous, right? 
But truthfully, we don't know if that's true or not. Maybe he has, maybe he hasn't. But Jesus doesn't get hung up on any of that at all. Jesus just goes in for the kill. Look at verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Now, whatever you do, please do not overlook those two words in the passage right there. Jesus, looking at him, quote, loved him. It's out of love for this guy that Jesus says what he's about to say. You have to know that. And said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor. And look at this next phrase. Then you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. Now, pay very careful attention to the language that Jesus used just now. He tells this man that in order to experience eternal life, in in order to experience this eternal, joyous, satisfied existence with God that he wants, what this guy has to do is sell everything he has and give it to the poor. Now, one question we might have is why go after this guy's money like this? Right? I mean, Jesus talks about money a lot, but he doesn't bring it up with every person he meets. Jesus calls a lot of people to follow him, but he doesn't call all of them to respond quite this way in terms of their money and possessions. So why single out this guy's money and possessions? Well, I think we can safely assume from the passage that this guy's money and possessions were a very big deal to him. This guy didn't just happen to be wealthy. His life was all about his wealth. It was everything to him. It was to him what made life worth living. It was the source of his greatest joy and happiness in the world, or to use Jesus's language in the passage, it was his treasure. This guy's money and possessions were his treasure. So what Jesus calls him to do is relocate his treasure. He calls him to to change, to adjust, to shift the thing that he cares most about in this world to be something different than it currently is. And the way for this guy to do that is by selling everything he has and giving it to the poor. If he does that, Jesus says, he will have treasure in heaven. You see, Jesus knows that there's no use in someone being in heaven if their treasure is still on earth. No use in being in heaven if none of the things that bring you the most happiness in the world aren't going to be there. So one way to read this story is that Jesus is trying to take this guy's happiness away from him. You could read it that way. I would argue that's not what's happening, though. The other way to read it, the correct way to read it, is that Jesus is trying to help this guy find a more lasting source of happiness. That's what he's doing. So here's the incredibly important distinction that we have to get when it comes to the relationship between God and our faith and happiness itself. God has a much deeper understanding of happiness than we do. That's it. That's how the Bible can simultaneously say things like, take up your cross and follow Jesus, and also can say things like, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. The way that it can hold both of those in tension is that God actually cares about our happiness far more than we do, but he cares about a deeper happiness, a better happiness for us. 
In other words, God is not after shallow, fleeting happiness at all. He's after lasting, soul-level happiness. And those are actually two very different things. Truth be told, there are times where immediate happiness gets in the way of lasting happiness. This is just the way that it works. And here's the thing. We actually get that when it comes to certain arenas of our life. We understand that this is how it works when it comes to certain parts of our life. For example, very practically, just think with me for a second about the concept of working out. Some of you are like, I would rather not. Uh, I didn't say you had to do it, just think about it. Think about the idea of working out. For me to experience the truer, more lasting sense of happiness that comes from being healthy and fit and feeling better about myself on that front, I have to forego the immediate happiness that would come from never going to the gym ever under any circumstances, right? For me to experience the lasting happiness, I have to forego some form of temporary happiness. Or bare minimum, I have to be willing to forego the hour that I would just prefer to sit on my couch and watch Netflix instead of going to the gym, right? To experience a more lasting happiness, I have to forego a more temporary one. We understand this when it comes to eating healthy. For instance, when I go to Chick-fil-A, which by the way has way better chicken sandwiches than Popeye's. I'm not sure why we were arguing about that this week. (laughs) I'm not even sure the Popeye's sandwich exists. I haven't seen one yet, so I don't believe that it exists quite yet. But anyway, I did not mean to start like an inner conflict among our church family, but just felt like I needed to throw it out there. When I go to Chick-fil-A, Choosing to order a Cobb salad with grilled chicken makes me infinitely less happy than ordering what I would prefer to order, which is a deluxe fried chicken sandwich with, fr- with a large fry, with a sugary lemonade, and a chocolate chip cookie, and lots of Chick-fil-A sauce, right? Ordering the salad makes me infinitely less happy than ordering the fried chicken, but If I order the salad more times than I order the fried chicken, I might actually get to see my kids grow up to the age 18, right? In order to experience the more lasting joy of seeing my kids grow up, I need to forego the lesser joy of ordering exactly what I want in the moment. We get this in some ways when it comes to saving money. All of us just inherently know that in order to have more money later, we probably need to save money now, right? I want my family to go on vacation next summer, so I have to be willing to spend less money, usually on Chick-fil-A, in the here and now so that we can save up for that vacation, right? If I want a better, more lasting happiness, I have to be willing to forego a lesser happiness, Do you you see this? We all inherently get that this is how it works when it comes to certain arenas of life. We understand this principle. Now, I'm not saying that we're always good at applying those principles, okay? That's a whole different teaching for another day. But I am saying we all inherently understand that that's how it works. That's just how life functions sometimes. So in order to get a truer, more lasting form of happiness, we may have to forego a lesser, more momentary happiness. We get this principle. But for whatever reason, we find it hard to transfer that mentality over to other arenas of our life. For instance, it seems like any time that God suggests that we might delay some form of temporary happiness, we are just immediately skeptical about it, aren't we? 
We just think internally, I don't know, it feels like God's trying to take something from me here. For instance, when the scriptures teach that sex should be reserved for the context of marriage, it is so hard for us to even imagine why God might have a good reason for saying that. When the scriptures teach us to be radically generous with our money, leveraging it for the kingdom and for others in need instead of buying the nicest things that money can buy us in the here and now, we find it so hard to get on board with that concept, so hard to imagine why Jesus might give those instructions to us. Or when it comes to what the scriptures say about working through conflict with other followers of Jesus, rather than just pushing away and bailing on them anytime there's the first sign of tension. We find it so hard to imagine that God might have a good reason for encouraging us to do that for our own joy, right? So when it comes to all these other arenas of life, and particularly when it comes to our obedience to Jesus, we have such a hard time imagining that foregoing temporary joy and happiness might lead to a more lasting sense of happiness. But Jesus, because he loves us, just like he loves the guy in the story, often insists that we pursue a deeper level of happiness, just like he does for the guy in the story. He's not against this guy's happiness. He's actually for it. He just wants a better version of happiness for him. And don't forget from the passage why it tells us that Jesus says this to the man. Jesus says it's because he loves him. The scripture says it's because Jesus loved him. That's why he says what he says. That's what prompts him to give these instructions. It's his love for the rich man in the story. How many of you have discovered that sometimes in order to love someone, you have to tell them things that they don't necessarily like? Most of us with a pulse have realized that right? In order to love someone, you sometimes have to tell them something that they don't want to hear. Sometimes loving someone looks like being more on their team than they are at the moment. And really, that's the perspective that Jesus takes in this story. He is on this guy's team. He wants good for the rich guy in the story. In fact, he's more on this guy's team than the guy himself is, but being on his team involves telling him something that he won't necessarily like, that he doesn't necessarily want to hear. Telling him that to find the true happiness that he's after, he's going to have to trade in this temporary lesser happiness first. That's the offer made to the man in the story, and unfortunately the man rejects that offer. Take a look at the last verse in our passage, verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Disheartened, he went away sorrowful. This guy walks away sad from Jesus, at, at least in part, because his immediate happiness via all of the stuff that he owns matters more to him than the eternal happiness offered him. He rejects Jesus because in his mind, Jesus stands in the way of his happiness. Jesus stands in the way of the thing that he wants most in the universe. Now that right there is a story that a lot of us have seen play out far too often. Many of us have seen that sequence of events play out before our eyes so many different ways with so many different people. 
someone who just cannot understand why Jesus would ask them to give up something they love to follow him. And so they walk away from Jesus. And if I could be honest with you guys for just a second, uh, here is my fear for some of us in the room. My fear is that some of us in this room have already walked away from Jesus and we don't realize it yet. My fear is that some of us have so reinvented God to be someone who never opposes the things that make us happiest that we don't realize we actually walked away from the real Jesus a long, long time ago. We've begun to operate as if we, we won't even let Jesus touch certain arenas of our life, and we've convinced ourselves that that is a legitimate relationship with God. It's not. I want you to hear that Jesus does care about your happiness. Now, he's not a blind cheerleader for it. He's not going to immediately get behind whatever it is we think we need in any given moment, but at the same time, he is for you finding true joy and true happiness and true satisfaction in him. He is a fan of that. He wants that for you, and that's what he wants for the guy in the story. This guy in the story was just unwilling to believe that, and sometimes we are unwilling to believe that. One of the saints back in the day was known for saying that sin is the unwillingness to trust that God wants our deepest happiness for us. Now, in order to get at this idea from a slightly different angle, just before we're done today, I want us to look at one other passage. This one's from Matthew 13. You can turn there. We'll also put it up on the screen since it's just one verse. But I want us to look at Matthew 13, verse 44. So this time, what we're reading about is not an actual interaction that Jesus has with somebody, but rather a hypothetical story that Jesus tells. But in many ways, this story that Jesus tells in Matthew 13 is just the inverse of the story that we just read about the rich young ruler. It's a story about someone who faces a very similar situation, but makes the exact opposite choice. So take a look with me, Matthew 13, verse 44. Jesus says this, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So it's pretty easy to see the connections between this verse and the passage that we read earlier. This is a story about a man who is faced with a very similar situation as the rich young man to sell everything he has, but he has the exact opposite response. This guy goes and sells everything he has in order to buy this field with the treasure in it. He rids himself of every item that he owns. But don't miss how he goes about it. The story says that he goes about all of this, quote, in his joy. Did you see that? He does all this in his joy, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, but out of a sheer overflow of joy in his heart. Similar predicament, but the exact opposite response as the rich young ruler. So that begs the question, I think, what's the difference? What's the difference between the guy in Mark 10 and the guy in Matthew 13? What causes one of them to joyfully give up every item that they own and the other to walk away sad with their possessions still intact? What's the difference between these two people? 
I think the difference is in what they think they're gaining. The difference is in what they think they're gaining as a result of all of this. It's how they perceive of the result of this action. You see, for the rich young ruler, all he can see is his money and possessions. All he can see in front of his eyes is all of the things that make him happiest in the world no longer belonging to him anymore. That's all he can see in his mind's eye. But the man in Matthew 13, all he can see is what he's gaining, right? All he can see is the treasure that he hid in the field. Such that for him, selling everything he has to get that field, to get that treasure, is a no-brainer. Because he realizes he will gain far more than he ever stands to lose. He gets that what he is going to gain is far better than anything he has to give up. And then Jesus says, that summary line, this is what life in the kingdom of God is all about. It's about understanding that you gain far more than you will ever have to lose. It's about finding more worth, more value in Jesus and his kingdom than you do in the things that bring you happiness in the here and now. That's what it means to be a part of God's kingdom. Because when you become a follower of Jesus, one very important thing happens as a result, and it's that your happiness ceases to be dependent upon your circumstances. It ceases to be dependent on your possessions. It ceases to be dependent on anything here in this world. When you become a follower of Jesus, your happiness is not dependent upon how much money you make or what job you have, or if you date, or if you marry, it is no longer dependent on any of those things. You can still enjoy those things, still participate in those things, but you no longer need them to provide ultimate happiness for you. Because in Jesus, you've found the treasure in the field. What the guy in Matthew 13 is communicating by his actions is that he is content having nothing else if it means he gets God. So what we're saying when we claim to follow Jesus is that Jesus is enough for me even if I don't get into that college that I so desperately wanted to get into. We're saying that Jesus is enough for me even if I never meet that perfect person. That Jesus is enough even if we never get married. Even if we don't graduate with honors. Even if we don't get that job that we've always wanted. Even if we don't rise to the top of the ladder in our career. Even if we don't get the 2.5 kids in the white picket fence. Right? That's what we're saying when we claim to follow Jesus. Is that Jesus is enough even if none of those things that I want to happen end up happening for me. Because our joy and our life and our satisfaction and even our happiness is not found in our circumstances anymore. It's found in the death and resurrection of Jesus on our behalf. That is what makes life worth living for us as followers of Jesus. And listen, don't hear me wrong. It's not that any of those things are bad things. Not at all. It's not that we don't pursue those things if God is calling us to pursue them. That's not what I'm saying. It's just that we stop operating as if our happiness is contingent upon them. That's the difference. They are not required for us to think that life is worth living. When you come across a follower of Jesus, you are not seeing a person who has given up on their happiness. That's not it. It might appear that way from a distance, but that's not what you're witnessing. What you're seeing when you see a follower of Jesus 
is a person who has found a truer, more lasting source of happiness in Jesus and his kingdom. That's what it means to follow Jesus. You're witnessing a person who has found the treasure in the field. So what I'd love for a lot of us in the room today is, is to move from the response of the rich young ruler in the book of Mark to the response of the guy in Matthew 13, to the response of the guy who found treasure in the field. No doubt some of us have rejected Jesus, or at least rejected the real Jesus, because we think that he has asked too much of us. Because we think he has asked something of us that we aren't willing to give up. And so maybe as a response, we also have walked away sad from Jesus. We've decided that it's not worth that. And so if that's you today, if you would say that's where you're at currently, I would offer you one thing to chew on today. And it would be this, Jesus is actually offering you more than he's asking you to give up. He is. He is going to ask you to give some things up. That's for certain. That will happen. And some of them very well may be major significant things that you love and you cherish. He is going to ask you to reprioritize some things as a result of becoming a follower of Jesus. But what he's offering you is the treasure in the field. He's offering you the thing that you cannot find anywhere else. He's offering you him and his kingdom. And so on that note, one last very important thing before we're done. I don't want any of us to think that the message of Jesus is give things up so that you can get something better. That's not the message of Jesus. That's a response to his message. That's, that's what his message generates in us. That's not the message itself. The message of Jesus is not first about our sacrifice, but about Jesus' sacrifice. That's what's at the core of it all. In Hebrews 12, the author is writing about casting aside every weight that hinders us. In other words, he's, he's talking about what Jesus is inviting the rich young ruler to do, to, to cast aside anything that might hinder us from following Jesus. But then in Hebrews 12, it also puts in no uncertain terms why we are to do that, what the motivation is for it. And the motivation, it says, is Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Jesus, for the joy set before him endured the cross. Jesus' own pursuit of joy led him to give up far more than any of us will ever have to. He gave up the comforts of heaven, the unbroken relationship he had with the Father. He gave up his honor, his dignity, and ultimately his life in the most brutal sort of way. Jesus gave up more than he will ever ask us to give up. And I think one thing that tells us is that there is something far deeper than surface-level, fleeting, shallow happiness. There is something far more important than whatever makes us happiest in the moment. There is joy available to us that is worth suffering the loss of all things for. And for Jesus, do you know what that joy was? It was us. It was you and me. It was knowing that through losing everything, he could purchase us out of our sin and into his kingdom. That was the joy set before Jesus. And listen, that's true regardless of who you are, what you've done, what you came in here struggling with this morning. That's true wherever you are at today. 
Jesus did that for you. It doesn't matter how ill-deserving you think you are of it. In fact, that's kind of the point, how ill-deserving we are of it. For Jesus, it was still worth anything that he had to give up. And so that's precisely what he did for us. And Jesus doing that is precisely what makes our joy possible in return. It's what makes it possible for us to experience something more lasting than temporary happiness in him and his kingdom. So if you want to experience something better than waiting for the next thing in life to finally make you happy, if you're tired of thinking that the next thing is gonna do it for you and then it doesn't do it, that's where it starts. This is where it starts. It's with Jesus suffering the loss of all things on our behalf. Without that as your guide, it will never make sense why you might give up something that brings you happiness. It will never make sense why you might do that. But when you worship a savior who gave up the joys of heaven to experience pain and suffering and loss on our behalf because of what he could gain through it, it all starts to make a little more sense why we would give up things that make us happy as well. Jesus sought something better than momentary happiness, and so we do too in response. Let me pray for us. Um. Father, thank you that you are for our deepest possible happiness. God, thank you that that's not all you want for us. But God, thank you that you came to bring joy and joy to the full. God, I know the things that uh, we talked about today are um, just so incredibly opposite um, what everything in our culture disciples us to believe. God, and I know there are a million different voices screaming in our ears at all times, do whatever makes you happy. But God, I pray that through your spirit, you might keep before our eyes something better than fleeting happiness. God, that you would help us to grasp that you want something better for us than that. God, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus to the cross to suffer the loss of all things. God, to give up everything for our sake. And so I want to pray that you would help those of us that follow him to, to follow his example in that. God, that we would be content having nothing else if we have you. And God, that we wouldn't be constantly looking for the next thing to give us joy, but that you would give us joy that overflows into the world around us, into the lives of the people around us. 
God, you have not made us an empty tank that constantly needs other things to make us happy. In Jesus, you have made us a full tank that gets to overflow into others. And so, God, would you help us to function that way? God, if we've forgotten the joy that you bring us, the life that you bring us, I pray that this morning you would help us to remember. God, and I pray that as a result, we would live these countercultural lives where we're not just seeking after shallow happiness, but we've found the deepest happiness available to us in Jesus. So God, would you help? Would you make that true of us by your spirit? We ask that he would move and he would work in our time together this morning. It's in your name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. As many of you guys know, we are in the process of renovating and moving into a historic church building located on the Tennessee River right in the heart of Knoxville. If you regularly benefit from this podcast, we would love to extend the invite to you to consider giving to those renovations. If you're interested in finding out more, head to citychurchknox.com slash building.